Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. This episode may be my most controversial, but I'm still not sure why. What I'm outlining here is the underlying theory I use to explain to my clients where their illness comes from and how they're going to get better. It's amazingly simple, not original to me at all, but is also offensive to a lot of people. And it explains practically all of the issues that the psychology world is facing today. What I want from this episode is to be challenged, to start a discussion. You develop ideas through adversity, and thus far, I haven't found a lot of adversity to these ideas. That doesn't mean people have agreed with them, they just haven't challenged them. So, if you would, please listen, listen all the way through, and then shoot me an email about your thoughts. Alright, here we go. Thinking about a theory of everything. So, what is the issue? The world is freaking out about mental health issues, as if they were a mysterious phenomenon with no solution. We've convoluted the investigation with scientifically unfounded theories about brain chemicals and DNA and arbitrary diagnostic categories. We've developed hundreds of research-backed therapy approaches and are no more effective as therapists than we started psychotherapy 100 years ago. We've developed many medical approaches with many more on the rise, such as this new trend in psychedelics, and yet the rate of mental illness increases. Maybe we're missing something. The world of psychology is going through a replication crisis, meaning that many of the research findings and theories from psychological research of the past, including therapy outcome studies, are under question because new research does not support much of what we found in the past, and a closer look at the old research finds a lot of flaws in the methodology. Though distressing to the field as a whole, this has been helpful in that it has helped reveal the common factors. The common factors body of research has shown that the therapist-client relationship, also known as the alliance, is the most important factor in therapy change. Specific techniques or models, when studied in aggregate, account for very little change. This is helpful because it lets us know that therapists should focus on relationships rather than just trainings and certificates. However, it doesn't explain why people get better due to the relationship, or how therapists can develop better alliances and become better therapists. We have some evidence that certain therapist behaviors correlate with better outcomes, such as empathetic statements, seeking frequent feedback, gathering outcome data, but we don't understand what leads therapists to use that knowledge and to perform those behaviors. We know what makes a therapist better than others, and yet that doesn't make therapists get better we are still not getting better overall. There's also no unifying model that explains why people can experience healing from traditional or alternative medicines, placebos, or self-help books, or one that explains why group therapy has been shown to be as effective as individual therapy, or why many people do not benefit from scientifically supported approaches. We just don't know what makes people heal, only that in talk therapy, the relationship has something to do with it. But given the information we already have, we might be able to piece together something that makes sense. So, what is the proposed solution? The only answer I've found on the table, which relatively few therapists are discussing, is evolution. Or rather, the theory of evolution, which posits that all organisms adapt to their circumstances to create the best chances of surviving and perpetuating their species. Given a few principles of biology and neuroscience, we find that this theory explains all of the presented issues and provides simple, though not necessarily easy, solutions. 
evolution is the science world's theory of everything that explains why all organisms are the way they are, but we've been reluctant to apply it to the species Homo sapiens. When observing other animals, we find a simple mechanism for processing stress. Animals react to stress according to the data of previous experiences. They will fight if the threat can be neutralized, fly or run away, fear if the threat can be escaped, and freeze if the threat is overwhelming or inevitable. When the threat is over, animals are able to stay present or mindful and absorb the fact that the threat is actually over. They don't get chronic PTSD, anxiety, or depression unless exposed to chronic trauma. They adapt their fight, flight, or freeze mechanisms to their environment. When their environment changes, they change relatively quickly to match. They can't numb out or distract themselves from the present. As long as they aren't threatened in this process, they work through unnecessary threat responses. A quick example. Imagine a dog living with abusive owners that develops an immediate freeze response around them. It knows it will be hurt if it expresses anger or pain. It expresses anger at everyone else, as experience shows that aggression scares most people away and neutralizes the threat. When the dog is rescued, it uses its defense mechanisms with all new people. When it isn't hurt or threatened for its aggressive or frightened behavior, it has new experiences showing that the people around it are different from its owners. Its defensive responses are no longer necessary, so they steadily diminish in a new environment. Its internal resources are diverted from defense mechanisms to other functions like muscle growth, learning, and relationship building. Humans are mammals. They heal on the same principles of adaptation. However, humans are more complicated. We hold the history of many more stimuli and events in our brains and hold many more associations. And we can create stimuli from within our own brains, which most other organisms can't do. This makes creating a healing environment more difficult. Not only physically painful experiences activate our defensive responses, but misunderstandings, the future, and abstract concepts, things dogs don't have the wiring to consider. The other complication is our ability to dissociate. Many mammals can dissociate, meaning they can turn off fight, flight, or freeze when it serves an adaptive purpose. Drawing from my horse training experience, let's consider what it means to break a horse. When it expresses anger or fear, it gets whipped or spurred. If it gets depressed and shuts down, it also gets whipped or spurred. For the horse to not incur pain, it must suppress its anxious and depressive responses while keeping access to body control and learning functions to appease its master. The solution? Dissociation. The horse is probably doing this unconsciously, but whether or not it's unconscious, it's just the adaptive thing to do. As long as training is maintained, the horse will dissociate from emotions while it learns new tricks. But if you leave a horse in a natural environment, it will eventually revert to its natural functions. It recovers from its breaking. As a side note, this piece is not an argument against animal training, and I don't argue that dissociation is inherently wrong, and don't posit that all training involves dissociative mechanisms anyway. So, moving on. Humans also dissociate involuntarily. This is the hallmark symptom of dissociative disorders, which are virtually all rooted in severe trauma. However, humans often dissociate voluntarily, which is one of the main reasons they can retain traumatic symptoms in non-traumatic environments. They do this through any activity that produces quick results in masking depressive or anxious responses, which are just our unpleasant feelings. 
Stress eating, TV, games, phones, drugs, pornography, gambling are common examples. But humans have many different strategies to distract themselves from natural emotions trying to run their course. People even do it in the middle of therapy sessions. Talking in circles, going on tangents, choosing to talk about less stressful things. They can even use therapeutic techniques, like thought-challenging exercises or positive thinking, to push emotions away, or, you know, down, with logic. I'm going to talk a bit more about this cognitive behavioral dissociation a little bit later on. So, even if the process of healing is natural, and something that all animals do, our human intelligence allows us to stop it, and even to make our unnatural mechanisms automatic. However, interruption of natural processes tends to have negative side effects. Emotions don't regulate to adaptive levels when they aren't allowed to. It can get to a point where they actually cannot be processed naturally without a severe crisis ensuing, such as psychosis or suicidal ideation. We become dependent on our dissociative mechanisms because the alternative is overwhelming. And here's a real-life example. Imagine a teen boy who is experiencing bullying and loneliness at school. He begins playing video games more than usual to cope with his pain. The trauma builds up as he continues going to school, but rather than discharging the pain, because he doesn't know how to do that, he numbs through more video games. It gets to a point where the trauma buildup would evoke suicidal feelings, but he doesn't even know those feelings are there because he's checked out with gaming. When his parents finally start restricting his gaming, he is left alone to face the emotions, gets overwhelmed by that traumatic buildup, and threatens suicide. It's gotten to the point where he actually feels he cannot live without the games, and he's not wrong. If he doesn't have safe people to help him through the initial wave of traumatic feelings, he might not survive. Effective therapy doesn't just reduce symptoms, which can be done with enough dissociation or drugs, but it creates an environment where involuntary dissociation is no longer necessary and challenges our urges to dissociate voluntarily. Effective therapy uses the basic principle of evolution, that organisms can and will adapt to their circumstances for their best chances of survival. But some might argue that evolution doesn't apply because people don't adapt for their ultimate well-being. When left to our own devices, we hurt ourselves. This makes sense, since people's health often can decline for years if left unchecked. But that's the condition, isn't it? Things will decline if nothing in the environment changes. People change when something happens that drives a new adaptation, or that allows for something better than what they're doing. Let's think of our gaming addict. If we take all things into consideration, we'd find that he's actually optimizing his health. He's racking up trauma on a daily basis at school. He can't tell his parents because they, in their kindest of intentions, try to make him feel better by giving him suggestions of things to do or encourage him to just not worry about it. This just makes him feel misunderstood and invalidated. He learns to stop talking to them because it only hurts more to do so. And he doesn't want to express anger at them since he usually gets punished for doing so. He can't run through his, his natural emotions. Video games offer some respite from the pain. He has felt tempted to cut himself and to look at pornography and to sneak dad's old painkillers. But luckily, the games provide enough relief, though only in ever-increasing doses. If he didn't use games, he might have started dissociating involuntarily, which is harder to treat and comes with worse side effects. Or he might have become suicidal more quickly, which might have been harder to detect and intervene with. 
This boy adapted as well as he could to his circumstances. The change came when his parents, who reached a tipping point in their anxiety about his behaviors, got up the courage to set boundaries. Once the environment changed, the boy could adapt accordingly. So, how does therapy, or any treatment method, create a change in environment? The therapist-client relationship predicts, he predicts healing because it is a way to introduce safety. An observable fact in biology is that organisms divert resources to the functions most important to their survival according to surrounding stimuli. As long as basic needs are met and no immediate threats are detected, animals heal, both physically and emotionally. This is why it doesn't matter what research-backed therapy method is used, as long as the client buys into it and feels safe with the therapist, they'll probably get better. The commonality between scientifically supported models is that they all challenge clients or introduce a strenuous stimulus with an appropriate measure of safety. If, if an approach strains someone beyond their window of tolerance, as we call it, it's likely to induce shutdown and dropout from therapy. If it isn't strenuous enough, it might feel good and safe, but produce no changes. This mechanism of safety introduction also explains why placebos or traditional methods work. As long as the person believes in and feels safe with the method, and a challenging stimulus is introduced or allowed to remain, the amount of safety the method provides may reduce anxiety enough for healing to occur. This would explain why placebos usually don't work as well as other methods, since a method is less likely to work with the general population if it doesn't make sense to them, or appears too hokey or magical. But empirical methods also don't work with everyone, because not everyone can buy into the method. Some simply can't understand them, which would happen especially if their logical functions are impeded by their mental illness. Some won't feel that the method applies to them, such as those who are unable to effectively challenge their thoughts, which CBT requires. And some may not buy in for re reasons unrelated to the method itself. For example, let's think of a woman raised in the slums who seeks conventional medical help to quit smoking. Her trauma from parents from police and social workers makes her feel anxious around authority figures. She feels stressed by her doctor visits and distrusts the information she receives about me medical methods of quitting, which are actually supported by research. Her smoking slightly increases to cope with the stress of trying to use medical methods. Instead, she visits an energy healer who looks and sounds just like her loving grandmother. She feels safe and understood and thus feels open to the healer's scientifically unsupported approach of releasing bad energy that perpetuates the smoking habit. With this boost of confidence and reduction of anxiety, with the feeling of support from a familiar person, the challenge of quitting becomes more manageable for her. The principle of safety explains why self-help programs or books can be effective and why group therapy can be as effective as individual. If the reader feels comfortable with the author's style, understands what they're saying, and feels validated by the content, they will feel more equipped to face their stressors. If a client feels safe in the group and is encouraged to engage in internal struggles with supportive people around them, the group can become therapeutic. And just as a side note on strategic therapies, where change may occur through the induction of tension in the therapeutic alliance, meaning like the therapist making the client mad and to change out of spite, the increase of safety comes in increasing the client's sense of power and autonomy. That helps them make changes to spite the therapist. Though the therapeutic relationship wasn't the mechanism of safety, safety was still introduced strategically. 
Um, I also uh, comment a bit more on on spirituality later on. Uh, This discussion doesn't seek to invalidate traditional or spiritual methods. It simply offers another explanation for those who don't ascribe to spirituality. Moving on. The theory of evolution also partially explains the replication crisis. CBT is the therapy method with the most research backing. This is because it is highly operational, or easy to turn into a step-by-step manual, and provides a direct, linear rationale for treatment that appeals to many in Western society. If you do more positive behaviors and think more positive thoughts, you will feel better. It makes sense. So we've been using it and studying the outcomes for a long time. There's an issue with outcome studies, though. They're based on measures seeking objectivity, meaning they measure behaviors and frequency of feelings on which diagnostic criteria are based, but they can't accurately capture a subjective experience. This means that outcome studies can show reductions in symptom scores while not necessarily showing that clients are getting better. I've experienced this pattern frequently with my clients, with whom I use these same kind of measures. Their subjective evaluation is often inconsistent with the outcome measures. Given this inconsistency, the outcomes in research studies may be difficult to replicate, especially as we gain greater knowledge of dissociation and as our culture encourages greater authenticity. In particular, I've noted a link between increased dissociation and decreased symptoms of anxiety and depression, and vice versa. More awareness of your experience and more mindfulness correlates with more anxiety and depression, you know, feeling bad. However, that latter case, being more aware of those bad feelings, tends to precede progress, whereas the former, where people dissociate from their bad feelings, leads to a crisis, where the suppressed thoughts and feelings explode into awareness in destructive ways, such as a suicide attempt or a relapse um, or other uh, circumstances that are unhelpful. What has been most disturbing is how some clients dissociate with skills they've previously learned in therapy, making themselves engage in, quote, healthy behaviors, and avoiding painful feelings with thought-stopping or challenging. They attribute progress they've made to those techniques, but actually have reduced awareness and authenticity. Like, yes, they have fewer symptoms, but they're just faking it a lot harder. Their numbers improved, but their health didn't. At least, I would not consider the successful suppression of emotions that leads to a personal crisis, sometimes decades down the line, or projection of symptoms onto others as desirable adaptations. This pattern may help explain why cognitive behavioral approaches show better short-term results, but not long-term results when compared to other approaches. I believe that an effective theory of therapy must account for the way that symptoms are reduced, not just that they're reduced. It may be that dissociation is actually the best thing for someone to do in particular circumstances, but it should be done deliberately, if possible. Compartmentalizing, we might say, rather than suppressing emotions. We should not view a symptom reduction caused by unnecessary or involuntary dissociation as a win. But to change this view, we would need to overhaul the very definition of mental and behavioral health. So, a new definition of health. Another reason the theory of everything has not already arisen in psychotherapy is that there's no agreement on what it actually means to be healthy. According to CBT, you are healthy if you are thinking logically and functioning productively. But what if you still feel terrible? In ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, 
You are healthy if you are acting according to your beliefs. But what if your beliefs are antisocial and you still feel terrible? Solutions-focused therapy suggests that you do more behaviors that help you feel good, and less of what doesn't. The long-term negative implications of this theory are obvious, and these are some of the most common models therapists use. Current diagnostic criteria mostly fail to recognize causes of symptoms, and don't acknowledge their adaptive functions. According to criteria, our gaming teen has clinical depression, but our parents don't have clinical anxiety even though they have difficulty setting boundaries with their son, or inability to listen and validate his feelings. Their anxiety causes them to fix and invalidate. The system is not seen as incompatible with emotional recovery, so the boy is seen as the problem. In a way, the diagnostic premise perpetuates mental illness in how it stigmatizes individuals. This is a larger discussion, but I propose that a new definition of health both define an optimum state, such as how much someone's sympathetic nervous system is activated, and define an environment where such a state is adaptive and possible. For example, it is adaptive to have a low heart rate and muscle tension in a neighborhood of low crime where all your basic needs are met, but not when you have gunshots going off at night and a corrupt police force primed to arrest you without a bribe in which case it would be more healthy and adaptive to have chronic anxiety. So, can we prove the theory of everything, or evolution? Evolution, on which all biological science is based, is not considered a scientific law because it can't be proven. <clears throat> and that's the issue with empirically supported therapy. We don't accept any idea as ethically viable unless it can be proven, or at least reported in a reputable journal to be clinically proven. We can prove that certain techniques work better than placebo, or nothing, through random control trials, but we can't prove why they work. For example, I can show that EMDR therapy reduces PTSD symptoms more than being on a wait list, but I can't prove with all certainty that it was the eye movements that made the change as opposed to exposing yourself to stressful stimuli while regulating in a safe environment to build new associations, which is the mechanism suggested in other therapies. Regardless, I can ethically use EMDR because my outcome studies show that it does something. But I can't apply the theory of evolution to an outcome study. Imagine I had one group receive therapy from therapists who treat according to the evolutionary model, and other controls of therapists that don't, and got better outcome studies with the treatment group. I could only show that getting therapy from these evolution-minded therapists produces better outcomes, not that the theory is true. Maybe it's the case that evolution-minded therapists carry a gene that gives them a propensity to believing the model, or that just makes them better therapists. Maybe I just recruited the best and brightest therapists I know to participate in the study. No matter how many factors I try to control, there would never be indisputable evidence. But what I haven't found yet is a simpler, but still testable, theory. So, to promote acceptance of this model, I'm counting on Occam's razor. I can't prove it's true, but I can prove that it's very likely to be, and continuously rack up evidence that coincides with it, as has happened with evolution. What makes evolution the simplest model to work from is that it always has a simple and workable explanation for why things change or don't change. From what I understand of other therapy models, they don't have an explanation at the end of asking why something happened or didn't, often with an underlying conclusion of they were just ready or they just weren't motivated enough, which is unscientific. 
The thing is, if you keep asking why and how, you must either come to a scientific conclusion, something real and observable caused it, or a non-scientific one, it's just how it is, something not observable caused it. And if we claim to be scientific in the psychotherapy world, then we have no business dealing with non-scientific conclusions. It just makes sense that we would conceptualize changes in humans the same way we do with every other living thing, even if the theory behind that conceptualization can't actually be proven. So, a few extra points here. One on medications. This theory doesn't argue for or against medications, but offers reasons, um, ways to think about their effects. Medications change intensities of anxiety, depression, and dissociation, but we still don't know why or how or why the effects are different for everyone. We also haven't effectively determined if whether you are feeling less distressed because you are more dissociated or because you are actually less distressed. People report all sorts of effects from medications. In the end, if it's working for you, use it. If not, try something else. But I will still assert that medications are useful only in as much as they increase your ability to confront your stressors, not avoid them. Medical mental illness. And what does this theory say about tumor or fever-induced mental illness? It recognizes their existence. If you have a tumor pushing on your amygdala, you might have excessive irrational anger. If you have inflammation cutting off circulation to your upper brain, you might feel depressed. If you, These are real sources of symptoms, but are much more rare as sources for most cases of mental illness. But the arguments for chemical imbalances and genetic causes are still scientifically unviable. If, they were, if there were clear explanations for mental illness, the research would have shown that by now. I'm open to those findings in the future, but for now, I prefer the simple and practical explanation that accounts for past discrepancies in research findings and successful treatments today, which we still can't use chemical imbalances or genetic causes in a scientific discussion about outcome studies. Spirituality. Finally, I'd like to address how spirituality plays in. I consider myself to be highly religious and spiritual, but I find that whenever I treat someone as if their illness or hurtful behavior arises as an adaptation to their circumstances, rather than as a spiritual issue or character flaw, just as I would with a misbehaving dog or a depressed horse, then I feel less triggered by them, more compassionate, and more likely to help them. I believe that whenever we try to attribute issues to someone's spirit, conscience, or other cause not explainable by science, then we are judging them which is against my religious beliefs. I believe all living things are spiritual, but it is not my job to discern how much or how well that spirituality is playing out. Recently, someone asked me about how I thought uh, demonic possession related to therapy. I don't know if I'm dealing with evil spirits in the therapy room. It certainly feels like it sometimes. But whether or not the person in front of me is bad or evil or, ha or has a scientifically explainable mental illness... I can only help them if I refrain from judging them and help them feel unconditionally loved. The force of pure love and safety treats both conditions. So that is the end of the essay. Um, I've got some, some of the research references um, here on the blog post, so you can click on the link in the description if you want to see those. But again, I want this to prompt discussion. I want to talk to people about it, so please reach out. Um, if you liked what you heard, or if you didn't like what you heard, I'd love to hear about it. Thanks.